Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E-A, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E-A, that's the book for me. And the link is ko-fi.com 
Smiley Smiles. That's K-O-F-I dot C-O-M forward slash S-M-I-L-E-Y S-M-I-L-E-S. Smiley Smiles. And thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. And as I get started with our lesson, this is John MacArthur, and it is on, let's see, okay, it says, whose fault is our temptation? Here on Trippy Toll Radio. It is the person who is able to control their emotional responses that is going to deal effectively with sin. Or the person who, if feeling those emotional responses, has a mind that is sanctified, and when it gets from the emotions to the mind, it is halted at that point. When you lose your job of 20 years, when your doctor or the police call with bad news, When disaster strikes and you're tempted to doubt God's goodness and his care for you, how will you respond? The Bible says that in this life you will have trouble. But God's word also shows you how to know peace and joy and avoid the temptation to sin, even in your darkest days. You're not going to want to miss John MacArthur's lesson today on Grace to You Weekend as he continues a tremendously practical study titled Benefiting from Life's Trials. And now with the lesson, here is John MacArthur. Now if I fall into sin, whose fault is it? Is it God's fault who brings the trials or allows them? Is it the fault of my circumstances? Is it the fault of my being created by God the way I am and I can't help it? Whose fault is it? There are five proofs that God is not responsible for temptation and therefore sin. Number one the nature of evil, the nature of evil. All evil repulses God. It can find no place in his holy character. So the nature of evil is infinitely apart from the holiness of God. In Leviticus 19.2, it says the Lord is holy. In Leviticus 20.26, the Lord is holy. In Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. 1 Peter 1.16, the Lord is holy. Holiness cannot be penetrated by sin. Secondly, the nature of man. The nature of man. Not only what evil is, but what man is. Look at verse 14. This is so interesting. But every man is tempted, or literally ekastas, every one or each one. But each one, each individual, is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, there's the problem. The problem is that even though we've been redeemed and even though we've received a new nature and even though we are created in Christ Jesus, we still have an enemy within. And it is passion. It is that longing to be satisfied with something which in and of itself may be a good thing. We don't need Satan. We don't need demons. We don't even need the world. All we need is the resonant passion of the flesh, and it will move out toward the baited hooks. So God is not responsible for our being tempted and our sin. The nature of evil tells us that because it has no part in the nature of God. Secondly, the nature of man tells us where the problem is. It's in us. Lust is the culprit. 
Now, James takes us to a third thought, expanding that second one. The third proof that God is not the source of sin is the nature of lust. Having identified lust in the nature of man, he now goes on to discuss it in verses 15 and 16 in very, very practical and helpful terms. And this is what I want you to focus on. This is really the heart of the the message for our own life. James shifts metaphors away from hunting and fishing to childbirth as he comes to verse 15 and discusses the nature of lust. Then, he says, when lust has conceived, and he sees lust here as a mother conceiving, it'll bring forth a child, the child is sin, and sin, when it comes forth, doesn't do anything but produce what? Death. Oh, this is so very, very helpful. Listen carefully. Most people think of sin as a solitary act or a series of acts or behaviors. God is saying here that sin is not an act. Sin is the result of a process, okay? It is the result of a process. It starts with, and I'll give you some D's so you can write them down and remember them. It starts with desire, epithumia or lust. Desire is related to emotion. It begins with a feeling, It begins with that feeling of wanting to be satisfied, wanting to acquire something to satisfy you, something that's been dangled in front of your face. You saw it in the jewelry store. You saw it on the car lot. You saw it in the mall or wherever. And it's strictly emotion. It does something to you. It makes you feel a longing. That's where it all starts. Sin begins with a desire. The second D is deception. And right alongside the word deception, write the word mind. What happens is you start with the desire in your emotion, and then it comes to a deception in your mind because you begin to justify and rationalize the right that you have for that which you desire. Right? This is just the inevitable pattern. Now, that's what we found in verse 14, being drawn away and enticed. The hook is baited. The trap is baited. It deceives the intellect. The intellect looks and says, I have a right to that. That looks good. That'll satisfy me. That'll meet my need. That'll quaff my desire. And so what starts with desire in the emotion moves to deception in the mind, and you really believe you have a right to it. You believe that it's there and it's beautiful. You believe it's fulfilling. You believe it'll give you what you want. So you move out, and what happens? Lust conceives. Let's call this the third D, design. Now the concept of how you're going to pull the sin off begins to form. This occurs in the will. You've gone from the emotions to the mind. Now your will is active and you're toying with your mind. What your mind has already concluded, your will is forming into a design. When lust has conceived, then the design begins to form. By the way, the word conceived, sulabusa, literally means to become pregnant. When lust, when lust as it were is seduced by the prostitution of that baited hook, it becomes pregnant. 
and the design is conceived, if you will, in the womb of a person's soul. Emotion desires something satisfying but wrong. It then moves to the mind and convinces itself it has every right to it, and having convinced itself of that, it then conceives the sin itself, the sin being conceived. And then we have the fourth D, disobedience. The act occurs. It brings forth sin. Any child that is born is born of that same process. First, there is a desire between a man and a woman. That desire for a child is then actuated in their mind. They decide to do that. They make up their mind that they want to do that. They then conceive that child. They then later give birth to that child. And so it is with sin. It is conceived as a desire initially in the mind. It is then justified in the emotion. It is then justified in the mind. It is conceived in the will and brought about in the behavior. That's the sequence. The word it brings forth sin, you see it there, is tekte. It means to give birth. And it occurs in the behavior. So next to disobedience, right behavior. The actual act from the emotion to the mind to the will to the behavior. The emotions lead the mind to rationalize. The rationalized mind leads the will to plan. And now the baby is born and the deed is done. And it all began with the desire. Now let me tell you something very practical. At what point then in our lives do we deal with sin? Out here at the level of behavior? No. Way back at the level of what? Of desire. It is the person who is able to control their emotional responses that is going to deal effectively with sin. Or the person who, if feeling those emotional responses, has a mind that is sanctified, and when it gets from the emotions to the mind, it is halted at that point. If it makes it to the will and something is conceived, it will be born. A child conceived is a child born. That child's got to come out. And so in dealing with sin in our lives, we don't just deal on the end of the line. Effectively, we've got to go way back to the beginning. If the emotions are allowed to be exposed to the baited hook, you've got problems. So I have to control my emotions. I have to control my mind. Because that's where the thing gets started. So I want to be sure that my emotions are given over to the things of God. You know what's a wonderful blessing in that regard? is good Christian music. Because I love music, and everybody does, and music is basically emotional more than cognitive. A lot of it is cognitive, but the bulk of it is emotional. And isn't it wonderful that we have the privilege in these days and these times to get the emotional enjoyment and have the singing soul and the feelings that we get through music that honors God. And isn't it wonderful when little kids growing up learn all that good Christian music so that their emotional responses and their joys and their sorrows can be set to music that is basically music glorifying God rather than music of the world? There are ways that we deal with our emotions. You cannot expose your emotions continually to things which lure you away from the things of God. You can't do that without paying a dear price. And the mind, it's very simple. You need the mind of Christ. You need a renewed mind. 
You need a mind that is set on things above and not on things on the earth. You need a mind that is saturated with the word of Christ, dwelling in it richly. You need a, a mind, uh, Paul says in Romans 12 too, that is transformed and not conformed to the world. You need to, can I put it simply, love the Lord your God with all your mind. What's in your mind? If your mind feeds on the Word of God, then you're going to stop sin way back. If your emotions are under the control of the Spirit of God and your feelings have been brought captive to Him, you're going to stop sin back where it starts. And may I add what he does add in verse 15? And when sin is completed, apakue means to cease to be pregnant. When sin does give birth, it's a synonym to tikte, the other verb used, it brings forth sin, and when sin is brought forth, all it brings is what? Is death. When sin is born, it is born a murderer. What a picture. The emotion, and out of the emotion comes the decision, and out of the decision comes the conception of the will, and then the behavior, and the imagery of the bearing of a child is so beautiful until it comes to the end when the child is born and the child turns out to be a killer. Sin is a killer. The wages of sin is what? Death. Spiritual death separating the soul from God. Physical death separating the soul from the body. Eternal death separating the soul and body from God. And he's not here particularly talking about Christians or non-Christians. He's just saying all sin ever produces is death. Even for a believer, it can be physical death, as 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 John 5:16 demonstrate. All kinds of death flows out of sin. So the idea that you're bringing some satisfying behavior to life is a lie. All you bring is sin, and all sin brings is death. And so he says in verse 16, Stop being led astray, my beloved brethren. Stop being deceived. It's again that word that we get the word planet from, as if something is wandering off. Know where the trouble is, he's saying. Don't be deceived. Stop blaming God and start blaming yourself and start looking within and don't go blindly through life just accepting what is and then blaming God. Realize that you have within you an enemy and that enemy is your own fallenness and your own last and that enemy must be dealt with. You cannot expose your emotion to everything that lures you. You cannot let your mind become captive to those things. You've got to know where the problem is, not be deceived about it, go back there and deal with it at that level. Stop it at the start. Fill your mind with the things of God so that they can never mate with your feelings and conceive sin in your will. If your emotions are controlled or if your mind is controlled, either one leaves the other without a mate to conceive sin. The nature of evil, the nature of man, and the nature of lust eliminate the fact that God could ever tempt us to sin. And then a direct proof, the nature of God. Verse 17, look at this. This is so marvelous. The nature of God. Here's the heart of the text. Just grab this. No one can blame God for sin because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. I mean, the only things that come down from Him are what? 
are good and perfect. We possess a nature that gives rise to sin. God does not. The nature of God is such that it only produces good. This is a twofold thing. On the negative side, what it's saying is God could never produce sin. On the positive side, get this. What it's saying is God is going to pour out good, 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 and more good. Why in the world are you going after baited hooks to be satisfied when God is pouring out everything you could ever use for all your satisfaction? The negative side, God could never produce evil. He's good. The positive side, he produces unending and unbounded good that makes a person a fool who would be tempted to be lured away to some baited hook or baited trap when all the goodness of God is available by his grace. Our flesh is a well of foul water when we think about what it does. And why would we ever drink from that when we can come to the well, to the fountain of life himself? God gives us every good and perfect gift. How foolish to grab the luring bait of sin. How stupid to climb into the trap when every good and perfect gift is coming down like rain out of heaven upon us. Satan tried to to tell Eve that God was holding out on her. God isn't letting you have the best. You better grab that satisfaction. You better grab that best. God kept the best from you. She bought that lie, and the child was conceived and born, and the child was death. Every good, every perfect thing is going to be his joy to give to us. They come down from him. Notice he's called the father of lights. That is a great statement. That was an ancient Jewish way of referring to God as creator. The lights they have in mind are the sun, moon, and the stars. He is the father of the lights, the celestial bodies. You say, why is he choosing that title? Because it fits his illustration. He is the father of lights, but with him there's no variation and no shifting shadow. Very graphic. Very graphic. He is the one who created all the stellar uh, bodies. He created all of them, but he's not like them. They vary, they change, they dim, they brighten, they bring light, they cast shadow. They're here in the daytime, gone at night, here at night, gone in the daytime. Their benefit to us comes and goes. God isn't like that. God's brilliant, bright light of, of glory and light of goodness and light of grace is no varying thing. It is not a And he uses the term paralagia. We get parallax from it. It doesn't pass from one condition to another. It doesn't have shadows. It never goes dark. 1 John 1, 5, in him is no, what? Darkness at all. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not. There are no days when he stops giving spiritual gifts. There are no days when he stops giving spiritual light. The streams of mercy never cease. Nothing can eclipse God's goodness. Nothing can stop his benevolence. Nothing can interrupt the flow of his heavenly light. Don't take the devil's bait. Don't conceive and give birth to a deadly child that could spell your own death. God gives all good and only good. Who's responsible for sin? You are. That's right, you are. This is Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. Thanks for being with us. John has titled his current study from James chapter 1, Benefiting from Life's Trials. John, I can't think of a more relevant study. All of us have suffered. 
or we will suffer one day. And we all have friends or loved ones that have gone through unbearable tragedies. And when that happens, when someone we know and love is suffering, we all want to know what to say, but perhaps more helpful is knowing what not to say. So talk about that a little bit. What shouldn't you say to someone as they go through a trial? <laughs> I think the best illustration of that is Job's friends. Right. They sat for a week and didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. They just sat in loving, quiet, compassion, and companionship and didn't say anything. And then when they opened their mouths, all wisdom flew out. <laughs> and everything they said was stupid. Uh, the first thing that they said that was wrong was that this is happening to you because of sin. Right. This is very much like the Pharisees said about the blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents. I mean, he's blind, he must have sinned, or somebody sinned. That's the bad advice of Job's friends. And they were relentless with Job. No matter how Job said, wait a minute, I, I, I don't know any sin in my life, I, I, I can't identify anything, they were relentless. They would not let him off the hook. They had a theology that says you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. If bad things happen in your life, it's because you're a bad person. That's pretty conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. It really is. I mean, just plain earthly wisdom. Be a good person and things will go out good for you. Be a bad person and you're going to be in trouble. I think that's the one thing you want to avoid is sitting in judgment on why something's happening in someone's life. Right. Um, because you don't know that. I mean, there are some cases where you do know that there's a person in sin, and there have been trials that have come into that life. And uh, But even in that regard, you know, we're not the ones who are going to say this happened because this was caused by their sin. So I think you avoid that. I think you show comfort and compassion and care and love to the person who suffers. Peter's lesson where he was unfaithful to the Lord, and uh, the Lord put him through that and said to him, now that you've gone through that, you can strengthen the brethren. Right. Moves to the positive side. So you don't, you don't want to say, this is happening to you because you're bad. You also want to be able to say, I've been through suffering, and I can tell you there's hope at the other end. And Peter could encourage people who went through the worst of trials. And, and Peter's trial was self-inflicted mm. by his denials. But he, Peter was restored and converted is the term it's used, and he could then strengthen the brothers who also would go through trials. So avoid drawing conclusions about sin and suffering and affirm people that you've been through suffering and you know the ends are for your good and God's glory. Thank you, John. That's really helpful. And friend, perhaps something you've heard on Grace to You weekend has comforted you in your suffering or equipped you to encourage others during their trials or helped you overcome sin. However this broadcast has benefited you, we'd love to hear your story. When you have a moment, jot a note and send it our way. Our email address here, letters at gty.org. One more time, that's letters at gty.org. You can also send your letter to Grace to You Weekend, Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. Well, as we've mentioned, our current study, Benefiting from Life's Trials, comes from the book of James. In addition to the encouragement James provides for times of suffering, it has practical teaching on genuine faith, handling money the right way, controlling your speech, and much more. To help you glean all you can from this epistle, 
John MacArthur has written a commentary on James. It's part of the MacArthur New Testament Commentary Series. And it's a great resource for personal Bible study or family devotions or sermon preparation. The James volume is affordably priced and shipping is free. To place your order, call 855-GRACE or order online at gty.org. That's our website, gty.org. Now for John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson, encouraging you to be here next week when John shows you how to find a powerful, abiding joy that doesn't depend on circumstances. John will be launching a study called True Happiness with another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You Weekend. at truthbetoldradio.com that is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M truthbetoldradio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Is it a woman's choice? This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Those who argue for abortion tell us it's a woman's choice whether to have a baby. After all, it's her body, right? Well, we actually shouldn't be talking about what she can choose to do with her body. We should be talking about the life and body of someone else, an unborn child. Think of it this way. A woman gives birth and soon realizes her baby is a lot of work. She's overwhelmed. Would that justify killing her newborn? No. But what if that baby was 24 hours younger and was still in the womb? Is it okay then? No. Murder is wrong, whether the child is born or unborn, because it's taking the life of someone made in God's image. Discover our breathtaking, fearfully and wonderfully made pro-life exhibit at the Creation Museum. Visit AnswersRadio.com to plan your visit. That's AnswersRadio.com. Before the throne of 
What about the hard cases? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. When abortion activists argue for abortion, they usually bring out the most extreme cases. They use them as examples of why all abortion should be allowed. One of those hard cases is rape or incest. Should abortion be allowed? Well, in America, when someone is convicted of rape, they go to jail. They don't get the death penalty for their horrific crime. And yet that's what abortion activists want for the unborn child, the death penalty. And yet it's the father who's guilty, not the unborn baby. Yes, such circumstances are horrible and complex, but the unborn baby is still a baby, a person made in God's image, and that baby deserves life no matter what the father did. There's more to discover about the sanctity of human life when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
abortion an issue of opinions? This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's word. Have you ever heard someone say, don't like abortion, don't have one? This is intended to shut down the discussion by saying, you have your opinion and I have mine. We can both live by what we believe. But is it as simple as that? Well, what if someone said, don't like slavery, then don't own a slave? Or don't like rape, then don't rape someone? Can the slave owner or the rapist just do whatever they like? No. Abortion is the taking of a human life. This isn't just some issue of personal opinion with no real consequences. No, like slavery and rape, it's an issue of human life, right and wrong. And it has horrific consequences. Discover more about how precious each human life is at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Tell it. We 
What about disabilities? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. A common pro-abortion argument is the challenge of bringing up children with severe disabilities. Isn't abortion the compassionate thing to do? Think of it this way. Is violently killing someone the compassionate thing to do to relieve potential suffering? No. Or what if we thought of it this way? A parent has a child who's hurt in an accident and is now disabled. Should they kill the child to end their suffering? Of course not. A person's value isn't determined by level of ability. It's already been determined by the one who made them fearfully and wonderfully and in his image. He says they're of so much worth he sent his son to die for them. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? No surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin salary, took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth the gospel is not fake news. Our debt is sin. The gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed. Let us sin. We got the medicine. It's still human emergency. The serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up. Stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up. Stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King. So it's To my composition Lots of rhythm But not tradition No kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The son of God is risen And my incentive For godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an obstetrician At times I listen A lot of Christian hip-hop Is missing The proposition It's my suspicion We drop the mission Not to this But the word of God Is it not sufficient The doctrine is That the gospel fixes I shot Condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper addiction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. 
sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again. He came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again. Nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to steal Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world steal Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say, worthy is the Lamb. What's up? There's hope. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we really can trust the Bible starting in Genesis. All this week, we've looked at common pro-abortion arguments. Now, what if you bought into these arguments and made the choice to have an abortion? Is there forgiveness for you? Yes. Now, abortion is wrong. It's murder. But God offers forgiveness for every sin through the cross of Christ. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and the penalty is death. But Jesus came and took our penalty of death for us. Then he rose from the dead. Now he offers forgiveness to all who will turn from their sin. When you trust in Christ, your sins are removed as far as the east from the west. God remembers them no more. You become a new creation. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Isn't it odd that we wear crosses around our neck? I mean, a cross is a symbol of torture, like wearing a little guillotine or an electric chair around your neck. So why is the cross different? Well, many amazing things happened on the cross, but one is that Jesus exchanged its meaning. Christ's resurrection turned the cross from a symbol of torture into a symbol of life, and Jesus exchanges the meaning of our suffering in the same way. Like my wheelchair is no longer a symbol of pain and confinement. No, it's a symbol of freedom and life because every day my chair keeps me leaning very hard on God, and that is a life-giving thing. Today, do your pain and problems through the lens of the cross and ask Jesus to exchange the meaning. The good news, you will find hope in your hardship. In Psalm 139, David wrote that every one of his days had been written by God before one of them came to be. God told Jeremiah that he appointed him to be a prophet before he was even born. The Apostle Paul also said that he was set apart by God before he was born. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. That is the picture that we see throughout Scripture. We didn't choose God. It is God who chose us for his glory through the saving power of Christ. We who are Christians were predestined before the world began by no action of our own. God chose those who would be saved and those who would be the objects of his wrath. 
don't dismiss this teaching as some sort of ism. It's what the Bible says. Now, that said, do you still have a choice? Well, as far as you're concerned, yes. Faith is given to us by God, but you still have to obey. Repentance is also granted by God, but you still have to turn from your sin. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them, but you still have to follow. You choose to be thankful. You choose to help others. You choose to preach the gospel. You choose it. Though it is God who wills and works for his good pleasure, we're still held accountable for the choices that we make. It's not for us to know now the full picture the way that God sees it. That comes later. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It is not you who chooses God, but God who chose you. Now confirm your calling by being obedient to what he has commanded when we understand the text. Hi, I'm John Erickson Tata, and I'm smiling. But, you know, sometimes people look at the smile as I sit in this wheelchair, and they ask, how do you do it? How do you keep smiling? I think that they assume that um, my smile comes naturally, like it's just, you know, in my nature to look on the bright side and to smile in the face of cancer or chronic pain or disability. But that just isn't so. Man, I've got to fight to stay satisfied in God. It is a daily battle to choose spiritual things over whining and complaining. So, when it comes to my smile, I am a Nehemiah chapter 8 kind of Christian. The joy of the Lord is my strength. When Jesus endured his cross for the joy that was set before him, he secured for me joy so that I could carry my cross with a smile. Actually, many crosses with a smile. And so when I feel weak and overwhelmed, I fight to stay joyful in Jesus. Cannot do it without. And once I have this joy, I love sharing it with others who also feel weak. It is the reason behind my smile and the joy in my voice. And that can be yours as well. So today, choose this joy. And once you have it, make sure you share that joy with others. President Biden recently visiting Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church of Martin Luther King Jr. and pro-choice, pro-choice pastor. A few moments later, Raphael Warnock and boom, he nailed the gospel. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart all thy mind and all thy soul and love thy neighbor as thyself. But in that commandment, in my view, lies the essence of the gospel. Not kidding. President Biden nailed the gospel. If you're a Roman Catholic, as a Roman Catholic, what is the good news of the gospel? supposed to be the golden rule, like love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay. Let me, let me suggest to you that that isn't good news. Your definition of good news was actually a law. The law is not good news. The law for us is very bad news. The gospel is not good news if you are a Roman Catholic system because it is a system of a works-based 
salvation in order to be saved in Joe Biden's church. Get ready for a laundry list of laws. You must be baptized. You must perform works of love. You must participate in the sacrament. You must go to confession. You must work off your sins. You must receive the last rites to increase your chances of going to heaven. So when our Roman Catholic president says the heart of the gospel is law, he's in lockstep with the false Roman Catholic gospel, which is not good news all. Do not be deceived. Catholics do not believe in grace alone through faith alone. The Council of Trent made that clear like five centuries ago. If you believe in faith alone, you're accursed. Now, there's a problem with that view, and that problem would be the Bible. One, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Two, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deed to the law. How clear could this be? Three, for what says the scripture? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Four, but to one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness five being justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ and not marrying the saints for by grace you are saved through faith not of yourselves it is a gift of god not of works so that nobody can boast if protestant pro-choice pastor warnock knew the gospel he would have mounted the pulpit after the president and corrected him sorry with all due respect mr president with whom I vote 99% of the time, I am charged to defend the gospel in this pulpit. And you just took Jesus out of context, misquoted him, and turned a gospel of grace into a gospel of works. You just heaped law on people. You did not present the gospel. Why didn't he do that? Because Raphael Warnock either doesn't know the gospel or he doesn't believe the gospel of grace alone through faith alone. And you say, hey, that would just be bad form, man, to publicly correct an official. Nobody would ever do that. Not so fast. I actually saw the little growing pain years ago, give or take. We were at an event together. Senator Norm Coleman, who was actually a good mayor and senator, said, when we maintain liberty— then we are free indeed. Kirk followed him, and he literally said, with all due respect, Mr. Senator, you misquoted Jesus. He said, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Forget President Biden and Senator Warnock. Not a bad idea, actually. But if you're concerned that your works have only earned you wrath and not reward, then I encourage you to run to Jesus Turn from your work righteousness, turn from your sins, turn from your attempts to earn salvation, and turn to Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him, and he will grant you complete forgiveness, everlasting life, based on his works, not yours. And this offer goes for Raphael Warnock, it goes for Joe Biden, and it goes for you. I use this example. Laban is one of the worst characters, 
one of the biggest scoundrels in the whole Bible. But when his daughters get married, now he's craftier the way he got both of them married off, okay? But he provides a dowry for them both. Now, you say those words, and some of those people, Pastor, who just hate patriarchy, you know, they, they just, they, they look for it. They got whole websites devoted to, you know, finding, you know, moments like this in a message where they take 29 seconds out and say, you see this? He's proposing a dowry, you know? But listen, here's what I want to ask you. The average wedding today, are you already, those of you who don't have married children, don't let this discourage you because you don't have to do this, all right? The average wedding today costs $25,000. The average wedding today, $25,000. Here's what I'm saying. How on earth do we live in a culture where people don't sneeze at paying $25,000 for a wedding to impress people that they don't even like? But I'm talking about a dowry, which would look something like this. You know what, baby? We're not going to spend $25,000 on your wedding. We'll spend five grand, but then we'll give you the other 20 so you guys can go establish a house. Now, you do that, and all of a sudden you're a caveman because you're essentially talking about a form of dowry. But you blow the twenty-five grand on one night, and you're valiant. That's crazy. You can't get there from here, people. But we are more concerned about the pomp and circumstance, which, quite frankly, has much more to do with how much we love Cinderella and the Princess and the Frog and so on and so forth. That Spending that kind of money on a wedding has to do with fairy tales that we fed our daughters since the time that they were small. It has more to do with that than it does anything to do with honoring Christ in this process of marriage. I'm telling you, we need to start thinking about not spending so much money on kids getting married and instead helping them to start with a leg up kind of financial security for them when they get married. And so we have another horrific police beating. This time it was not white police officers beating a black man to death, but it was black officers beating a black person to death. And once again, no doubt there'll be rioters who'll be angry, this not at white people, but at the police in general. So have things improved since Dr. Martin Luther King's powerful speech, his dream of seeing black people and white people living together? I don't think so. This is because the problem isn't racism. It goes deeper than that. Racism is the branch on the tree. And if you keep ripping the branches off, you're never going to deal with the problem. You've got to go to the root. Let me give an example of how confused the world is on this subject. Recently, $1.2 million was given to a Norwegian university to study how racism is caused by white paint. Then again, scientists are saying that we should paint the whole world with white paint because that will deal with global warming. The world-famous buildings of the Greek Isles and the glaciers that, for now at least, dot the globe. Their common color, white, helps keep them all from heating up. No matter the roof, roads, cars, we should be able to totally reverse global warming and bring the temperature back to where we want them to be. 
This interview is with a woman who says that all white people are racist and all men are sexist. You are calling straight white guys like me and a series of offensive, stereotypical labels I find, I find very offensive. About when you say all white people are racist, as a white person, I find that offensive. Please think about how to be part of the solution. Why don't you think about being part of the solution? I am part of the solution. You're not. You're causing more division. I need to be thinking about what the, what the root of racism, what the root of sexism is. The root of racism isn't skin. It's sin. That's the root cause of the problem. We have blacks killing blacks in Chicago. We have whites killing whites throughout the whole country. Asians are killing Asians and Mexicans are killing Mexicans. Because the problem is the human heart. It's wicked. That's the common denominator. It was Einstein who said, it is easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. Only God can change the evil spirit in man. He can take a hateful heart and replace it with love. That's the fruit of genuine conversion. The only answer for this lost and confused nation, which has become so godless, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is that gospel. What's your thoughts on the afterlife? A lot of people have like different mixed views as far as that. What's yours? We're going to go somewhere. I'm just not sure where we're going to go. Can you find out? Definitely. You wouldn't get on a plane not knowing where the plane is going. Right. Especially you've got no choice. You're not even getting on the plane. You are on the plane. You're heading for death. Ten out of ten dies. So you can find out where you're going. You believe the Bible? Of course. So, Timothy, you said you believe the Bible. Yes. You believe what it says about death. Uh, yes. What does it say? Uh, it says, uh, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, but what comes before? Judgment Day. Judgment Day, yeah. So how are you going to do on that day? I think I'll do it pretty well. You're not doing anything that's morally offensive to God? No. You think you're a good person? 100%. When's your last look at pornography? Teenager. Probably like 15. It's not that long ago, is it? Um, 31, so. You know, Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Did you know that? Yeah. In the Sermon on the Mount. And time doesn't forgive sin. If you do something at 17 or 18 and you're 31, God still sees it as yesterday. It's like court. You stand in court to rob the bank, but that was a long time ago. The judge said, you're going to jail. Right. We've got a confession out of you. Have you lied and stolen? I've lied. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Um, using God is like a, uh, it's not necessarily his name. It's, it's, it's you well, sure about that? Yes. Okay. So if you cut out the governor, but you don't mention his name, mm-hmm. you're despising the governor because the name and his person are one and the same. Can you see that? That would make sense. So when you use God's name in vain, you're insulting the God who gave you life. And the Bible says his name is holy and it's punishable by death in the Old Testament. Very serious. You know what we're doing? We're looking at the Ten Commandments to see if you need God's mercy. That's all we're doing. We're like a doctor speaking to a patient who says, I'm really healthy. And the doctor knows he's going to be dead in three weeks. So he's got to point out the symptoms so he can give him a cure. I'm pointing out the symptoms. You're not healthy morally. You're terminal morally. Because you're a liar, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart, you had sex outside of marriage. Fornication. The Bible says fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if God judges you by those commandments on judgment day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. If I repent of those sins, then I would be innocent. 
if God judges you by those Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, will you be innocent? That's a boy. If you don't plead guilty, you're not going to seek God's mercy. You've got to say, I'm guilty. No, you got to understand that you're the things that you do. Yeah, yeah. And you know what death is, according to the Bible? Wages. The wages of sin is death. God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal that's murdered three or four girls. He says, no big deal, judge. No prostitutes. Judge says, I'm going to show you how serious this is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you've earned. And Timothy, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's given you the death sentence. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. And this is your life, man. I don't want you to go to hell. That breaks my heart. I've just met you, but I love you. I care about you. And I want you to come to Christ in genuine sorrow for your sins. And as long as you say, oh, yeah, it's a long time ago since I did this, I've never stolen anything, and you're not honest about your sins. The Bible says, he that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. And God can let you live forever, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. You know that. 100%. We broke the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said, it is finished. Just before he died, he's saying, paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays that fine. Even though you're guilty, you say, you're out of here, someone's paid your fine. Well, God can let you legally live forever because Jesus paid the fine in full. Then he rose from the dead, defeated death. And all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent and trust in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. God commands all men everywhere to repent. You know what repentance is? Yes. Uh-huh. Where you fess up and say, I've been doing things that are morally wrong. God, please forgive me and turn from those sins. You don't want to play the hypocrite and say, I'm a Christian, but you're fornicating, lying, stealing, lust, and blaspheming. That's deceiving yourself. And then you trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. The Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him because you've got a jump coming, and it could be today, could be tomorrow, could be when you're 90, but death is going to take you. So this is deadly serious. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I 100% understand. Um, we're all guilty of sin, and we have a forgiving God. It's so. really important to not break the first commandments and create a, a false image of God. That's what it means. You shall have no other gods before me, where we create a God who's kind of not really angry at sin. But that's what the Bible says. It says, before we come to Christ, we're enemies of God in our, in our minds through wicked works. His wrath abides upon us. And if we die in our sins, we're going to hell because God is incredibly good but incredibly severe. Scriptures say, behold, the goodness and the severity of God. So don't rest in the thought that God is just all forgiving because yeah. if you don't truly repent, this wrath will come upon you to the uttermost. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus said. He said, fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more. That's a murderer. Don't fear him. But fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. And then he said, fear him. In other words, the fear you have from someone murdering you should be nothing compared to the fear you've had for God. Because right. the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So, Timothy, if you were to die today and God gave you justice, you'd be damned. That horrifies me. You've got to repent and trust in Christ. When are you going to do that? I don't know. Let me speed things up for you. When are you going to die? When I'm an old man. It could be in the night, couldn't it? In your sleep, aneurysm, heart attack. Yeah. Were your friends tomorrow say, I thought Timothy was healthy. He looked good. He had a great physique. Weak heart. He's gone. Yeah. And it's forever, man. This is your eternity. So you've got a choice. The pleasures of sin, sex with your gorgeous girlfriend, looking at pornography, doing your own thing, which takes you to hell, 
or saying, God, create a clean heart in me. Wash me clean, finding everlasting life through faith in Jesus. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. There's a tremendous sense of urgency. Can I pray with you? Of course. Father, I pray for Timothy to please grant him understanding today and please grant him repentance that he might be sorrowful for his sins and find a place of repentance unto life and find the everlasting life that's alone in Jesus. Let that be his portion today, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. you have a Bible, huh? Yes. Can I give you a book that I've written? Sure. You grab it. Good scientific facts on the Bible. It will substantiate the infallibility of Scripture. And then other things for you, too. Sort of a booklet called Save Yourself and Pain that I wrote. It'll help you grow as a Christian. Pray to talk to you, man. Are you going to think seriously about this? 100%. Thank you. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks. Available at livingwaters.com. Have you seen our video called This Muslim Didn't Object Until the Christian Said This? You're going to love it. You can watch it right now by clicking up to your left. Blessed assurance.
and his apostles warned us, beware of false prophets. Now, we tend to think of false prophets as being fake Christians, but heathens have their prophets too. Just consider the false prophets of climate change. In 1972, the United Nations predicted we have 10 years to stop the catastrophe. Then when 1982 came along, instead of admitting they were wrong, Mustafa K. Tolba of the UN said that if things were not fixed by the year 2000, we would experience an environmental catastrophe as bad as any nuclear holocaust. In 1989, they doubled down, saying that by the end of the century, we would experience global disaster. Once those prophecies failed, the UN predicted the end of the world would be in 2012, then in 2020, then in 2030. In 2019, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said the world was going to end in 12 years, which was past the UN's prediction. Then some teenager from Sweden made global headlines when she said, we only have eight years. These false prophets want to ban your cars, cows, stoves, power, farms, and families, and force you to get vaccinated and eat bugs and synthetic meat. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. That's a climate change prediction that won't be wrong. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved when we understand the text.
I don't forgive because it makes me feel better or I get a benefit from it. I forgive because it ain't nothing to forgive the slights that I have received, which are puny compared to the slights that I have given to my God. How many times today have you slighted the Lord? I'll just do the math for myself. I don't thank. I don't praise. I am not mindful of him. I am not consuming his word like I should. I'm not, I'm not even like, like Daniel. I don't even pray three times a day. Okay, I probably do, but not like in that, that same type of deal that he – okay, so I pretty much want to take that back. The point is I, I don't treat God the way that I'm supposed to, not even close. So now my wife doesn't treat me the way that she, quote, is supposed to, and I'm going to be mad for one slight when I've slighted my Lord 10,000 times today? That's why I forgive. I have – he should just grind me to powder, and he does not do it, and he is patient with me, and he forgives, and he forgives, and he's forgiving me even now. I'm perpetually forgiven in Christ. I, I, I need forgiveness all the time, and now I'm going to get annoyed at my kid who didn't chew with her mouth closed at the dinner table. Are you kidding me? All right, let's use something bigger. Somebody does something bad to you. I'm not trying to diminish that. But what we do, the Lord, by comparison, it is small. And therefore, I am motivated to forgive. I can forgive. That's my motivation. Benefit, it is good for me. From Rick Thomas, when I won't forgive someone. For, to this, you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example, following in his steps. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are to have the same attitude. We don't retaliate. We don't keep a list. We do not plan our strategy for retaliation. We don't do it because Jesus didn't do it. There are a few things. This is Rick Thomas, by the way, rickthomas.net, when I won't forgive someone. There are a few things more complicated than forgiving someone who has hurt you, indeed. And so we need to work through this very, very carefully. He writes, some of the saddest people you will ever meet are those who refuse to forgive those who have sinned against them. It's true. Forgiveness itself is a sin. And what happens when you sin more and more and you stay in a state of sin? Your bones ache. Everything, everything goes kafritz. And again, that's not our motivation to do it, but it is a consequence. If we don't forgive the way that we're supposed to with the correct motivation because we've been commanded to, we just spiral down. Nearly always, any discussion about forgiveness with them is met with deep emotional angst and sometimes hostility. What many of them is not need is not a rebuke, but a gentle, courageous, and biblical caregiver. Look, they've been hurt. This is the challenge of being a biblical counselor. Somebody has been wounded, painfully wounded, and they won't forgive. So now you've got to hurt. You've got to put a bandage and salve on that, but then you've got sin, and that's got to be addressed. Do you see the challenge? They need gentle, courageous, biblical caregivers with as much patience and compassion as they can muster. And only then can that person heal from the pain. You will have to be able to steward two contiguous realities, the hurt and the need to forgive the person who hurt them. And if you have been hurt, you do need healing. There is balm for you. But 
You also need to work toward forgiveness. Does that need to happen this second? I don't think so. I I, I don't think that's entirely human. I I think our trajectory and our mindset should always be, oh, I'm going to work toward that, but maybe it's just time right now to feel hurt or wounded. And I think that's okay. From Rick Thomas, though they must not hold on to unforgiveness forever, it may take time to work through the complexity of the soul that is required to truly let it go. Even if they are only releasing the offender from the heart attitudinally because the offender has never come forward to transact relational forgiveness. They didn't say they're sorry. And I think we can give time to people who have been wounded and hurt. Can't we? No matter the pain, no matter the regret, no matter the disappointment, we are called to forgive one another. Unforgiveness, unwillingness to forgive is the perpetrator of the sin will only perpetuate the victim's suffering. It's just going to make it worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, again, you shouldn't forgive because, ooh, danger in not forgiving. But that is something we need to be mindful of. Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When we don't forget, You feel it because God isn't for you in that regard. God wants you to forgive. Unforgiveness is just one sin, but like cancer, it never abides alone. If you leave it alone, other sins will take over, like gossip. The unforgiving person, quick to gossip, will be critical. You express more negativity than positiveness about life. The unforgiving person is joyless, experiences more anger and bitterness. So what's the plea here? Be motivated because you've been forgiven much, but please note the upside to all of this. Maybe, just maybe, if you are struggling in any of the aforementioned areas, gossip, being critical, joyless, anger, bitterness, ask yourself, am I failing to forgive somebody or people? Living in the freedom of a forgiving spirit is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. But if you don't, mm, here are seven reasons why you might not let it go. If you've been unforgiving, see if this is an explanation for why you have not forgiven somebody. Are you ready? Punishment. Do you have any desire for someone to punish the offender? fearfulness are you afraid that forgiving them will permit them to hurt you again unbelief do you believe that god will fully take care of what happened to you is it control you stay in control of the situation by never letting it go that happens a lot righteousness do you believe you are better than the offender who doesn't deserve forgiveness Acceptance, do you desire the sympathy that others can give you for what happened to you? That's a dangerous drug, isn't it? You, you, you keep getting attention because woe is you. Identity, are you finding your identity in your suffering rather than in Christ? Question, have you been failing to forgive somebody Might I encourage you, please note, our primary motivation for doing so is by doing sin math. Yep, people hurt us. Yep, 
I have sinned against the Lord a bazillion times more. When I do that math, it becomes very easy to forgive. It can be a process. It can take time. But furthermore, when you realize justice is the Lord's, not only can you move toward forgiveness, experience forgiveness, you'll actually start to pray for the people who hurt you because you fear the retribution of the Lord on them. But might I also suggest you try to figure out what's motivating your lack of forgiveness and you realize the benefits that you are missing out on and that maybe there's a lot, there's a reason that you're experiencing a lot of mm, negative emotions. Maybe it's because you've been lacking forgiveness. Until tomorrow, go serve your king. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God
Hi, I'm John Erickson Tata, and I have a journal in which I keep hundreds, hundreds of quotations from saints of days gone by, quotations that have in years past refreshed my heart whenever I needed a lift. Recently, I was feeling a little dry in my heart, and so I opened my journal and I read these inspiring words from Letty Kalman. She wrote, there are many crosses and every one of them is heavy and painful. And it is unlikely that I would seek out even one of those crosses on my own. Yet Jesus is never as near to me as when I lift my cross, lay it submissively on my shoulder and welcome it with a patient and uncomplaining spirit. He draws close to me in order to mature my wisdom, deepen my peace, increase my courage, and supplement my power. All this he does so that through the very experience that is so painful and so distressing to me, I will be of greater use to others. In so doing, I will grow under that cross. Friend, I pray that today you will grow under the load, the weight of the cross that you carry. For a burden placed on you by Jesus is always light. A few weeks ago, I was struggling with level 8 pain. It was unrelenting. And I confessed to a friend that I really had to climb my way up out of depression. And she said to me, come on, you're Johnny. You don't get that depressed. Well, I do. I mean, I have to fight. I, I got to fight for my joy and my spiritual sanity. And the best way I fight off the blues is to give thanks for everything. I make my heart be grateful. I stir my spirit toward gratitude. I, I stoke my thankfulness. God tells me to do it in First Thessalonians. So whether I feel like it or not, I compose a list of blessings and I recite them out loud. And I encourage you to do the same. When you feel depression creeping in, occupy your heart with a list of blessings before it gets filled up with morbid thoughts. Mouth your thankfulness. Your heart will catch up and your spirit will come into alignment. It's a great way to fight for your joy. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. And I want you to uh, join me next time, Sundays. And uh, I'm going to go out with Yancy and Friends and the VIVLE. And bye for now. <laughs>